Greetings and salutations. Hi. I'm Josh Belcher. Get the super sauce. I'll change into my super suit. <laughs> this is Uncharted. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, shapes, sorts, and sizes. This is Josh Belcher, host of the Uncharted Podcast. Now, we have a fantastic lineup for you this week. We have singer, songwriter, bass player extraordinaire, Martin Page, graced Uncharted with his presence, talking about all the major smash hits he has sang and performed and written, uh, one of them being, of course, The House of Stone and Light, The King of Wishful Thinking, These Dreams, We Built This City. Um, I could literally spend the whole podcast talking about this man's accomplishments, but he and I will discuss them together. Uh, that interview is coming up, and it is fantastic. We also decided to reprise for this special edition of the Yettysburg Address. Now, you may remember that from the origins of the Uncharted podcast, where Sam Madewell and I were interview someone, a foremost expert in the world of Sasquatch, Bigfoot, the Yeti, whatever you may know him by, UFO enthusiast, the whole nine yards. Well, for this one, we've got Ron Moorhead. He is famous for the Sierra Sounds, where he actually captured... Bigfoot in his natural habitat, um, conversing with each other in their own language. Uh, he has the most documentation of that that I've ever heard or seen. And uh, so we go into discussion with that. And all that's right now on the Uncharted Podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for tuning in. The podcast this week was proud to welcome Martin Page. This was a very exciting interview for me. As you all know, I'm in physical therapy for my uh, shoulder replacement. I mention it a lot because it's quite an experience. The other day I was thinking about the song King of Wishful Thinking by Go West. Did a little research, realized Martin Page wrote it uh, along with a song called House of Stone and Light, but that's not where the story ends. He's written a ton of songs that I love. One of the most talented humans on planet Earth and a phenomenal bass player. Well, we've got him on the podcast and he was so delightful and indulged me. I love when my heroes are cool with me because it makes me feel cool for a little bit. So enjoy this interview as I did. Martin Page, big time here on Uncharted. Enjoy. little unfortunate disclaimer with the Martin Page interview here on the Uncharted podcast. The outlet that I pay to monitor my recordings um, when I'm doing phone conversations, which during COVID is 97% of all of my podcasts, they cut the interview short. It was a great interview and I'm lacking about 12 minutes worth of excellent stuff. So I apologize. Uh, Martin Page cuts off at about 17 and a half minutes beyond pissed about this and I'm searching for a new um, outlet to monitor or take care of my recordings or whatever you want to call it. So anyway, on with the interview. Enjoy. Well, let me just tell you, here, here's my story of why I wanted to, to talk to you at this moment in time. Um, I recently went through a total shoulder replacement surgery, 38 oh, years goodness. old. Oh my and, goodness. Uh, <laughs> and, mm. um, while I'm sitting in the waiting room for physical therapy, uh, I listen to music or think about music, uh, you know, living in Nashville. Yeah. I've played my whole life and everything. And uh, the yeah. song King of Wishful Thinking uh, ran across my brain. Wow. And, 
<laughs> I've it's, always loved the song because it um it's the saddest yet most upbeat <laughs> song ever written. Because uh, if you, it's, it's upbeat and you can jam to it, but if you really listen, it's a well written song. Um, it sounds like, and I was thinking of an artist that that could have covered it. Like it sounds like an old '60s R&B kind of classic as well. Like, um, yeah, uh, Wilson, well, I hear Wilson Pickett singing it. Like it's like it, it was yeah. like if he was. You know, around, you, 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 I have to say, Josh, you, you're absolutely right. You know, over the years that I've um, sort of these songs have remained out there and, and I've been able to think about them over time. I, I totally agree with you. I, I, I often think that it could have been a Motown song. It could have been a Smokey Robinson song. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I really hear that. And uh, in its simplicity, but also, as you say, Josh, in its um, a bittersweet lyric. So it's true. In the last few years, I've been hearing it myself and I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, that's a, that could have been a Motown song. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. It, uh, uh, it, it but did it did it help you with your arm being severed off? Uh, <laughs> it, it did because because I as a musician um, and everything I, I take the time to really study the song. And yeah. I have felt that heartache. Obviously, you know I've loved and lost and and have said to myself, okay, I'm yeah. going to be over it. But just the way it's written and what I love yeah. about it is it's the only heartbreak song that you can really dance and groove and get into it's just it's brilliantly <laughs> made and i've always wanted to tell you thank you for it and then oh, i'm looking up you. more songs i mean I, I didn't know you had written that one of course i go investigating and i've always known yeah. you from uh, house of stone and light which is one of the right. greatest songs ever as well oh, um, i appreciate and that just, and then you know looking up more and that you're all over the place um so let's, get, <laughs> let's get to a question yeah. As, a, as a drummer, I'm, I'm kind of leaning now more towards I've gotten a bass, you know, because of my arm. And yeah. I learned that the bass was your choice, your main instrument, although you can play several. Uh, why did you lean towards that and, like, being your, your instrument, like, the, the main one you play? Yeah. Well, let, let me first say, I hope you're healing well, mate, because I uh, that's the major thing you went through, and particularly as a musician, that must be very frustrating. Uh, but I can tell with your spirit that you're going to be able to get right back into onto the saddle again. But um, thank you, thank answering you. Your, yeah, answering your question, um, I, I'm a very, I'm a big guy. I'm six foot four, and uh, the uh, the bass guitar just seemed to always resonate to me whenever I heard those records that we're talking about, like Motown records. And I grew up when the Beatles were happening, so the bass, for some reason, um, I heard and I felt and. Uh, you know, you mentioned the dancing, and I used to love to dance when I was a kid. In, in England, we used to go to the top-ranked suite in the pier in Southampton and hear reggae music and Motown music on a Monday night. I loved to dance, and um, I heard the bass. And, of course, I grew up when reggae also was beginning to happen in England, um, uh, early 70s. And so the bass was very prominent. And, again, I think, um, you know, uh, early uh, late 70s, early 80s, I traveled with my father to American uh, air bases where he worked, and I started to hear Bootsy Collins, uh, Stanley Clark, um, uh, Pastorius, and we uh, and, and you'd hear just bass being mixed into records much louder. And um, I always felt that bass was with the drums, and you play drums are the most fundamental and most important part of music. I still feel that. I, I believe it is the skeleton of good songwriting. So. Bass spoke to me in a very primal way. Uh -huh. Yeah, and, and, and being like, and I'm with you. I like to dance. I 
I, I don't yeah. have great dancing skills, but I'm risky. I do have the risk. The Nor did I. Nor did I. But it was a, but <laughs> but it was a good yes. way to meet the girls. Yes, exactly. Girls. Exactly. Uh, the rhythm section to me is, is the yeah. heart and the life because when you get that hook, like, you know, like we're talking about King of Wishful Thinking, it, it's that bass lick that's getting you, you know, and, and yeah. then the drums yeah. follow and everything because the bass brings out an emotion. It's almost like it's a, it's a uh, spiritual entity all of its own and everybody else just follows suit or tries to. Well, I, I I agree with you. You know, um, I also think it's a, a, a very powerful sexual um, connotation to music. It's the uh-huh. it's the underground pulse of something, and it, it's you know rhythm is sexual and uh, bass, uh, especially when you're young and you're beginning to dance and you're you're finding out about life. To me personally, uh, bass seemed to me the um, incredibly uh, incredibly simplistically powerful. And I'd almost hear the I'd hear the melodies, but I'd also feel like, well, where's the where? Why am I loving this? And then, then I'd look past the melody and look past the chords and and uh, the harmonic uh, the harmonic roots of a song, which always end up to me as the bass. As I bought so many records as a as a kid, I used to. Um, actually got get angry of some of the mixes that I heard on records I bought where bass wasn't very loud. I was always mm-hmm. looking for rounded, well-sounded, uh, sounding um, low bass records. And in, in fact, on my own album, In the House of Stone and Light, and most of the records I've made myself, um, I do concentrate very much on the bottom end and uh, the free end of music because I do believe, um, interesting talking about this, that bass and the low end uh, of tone is emotional. I think we get moved as well, not only to dance, but I think if a record's too bright or too crisp, we, uh, you know, put our teeth on edge and we just think, well, that's exciting. But to live with something for a long time, I think bass is very, very important to music, particularly when you watch orchestras play. You know, they'll have maybe four bass players playing the same notes to get that resonance of emotion. So um, I'm pleased you, you brought that out, Josh, because... I'm not really thought as much as a bass player because, um, you know, as a mu- I did start off as a bass player, but something became important. But uh, bass to me is still uh, my deep love, really. Sure. Well, I mean, uh, you know, you're 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 gifted in both aspects, and and, and you know, you. I, uh, I I I revisited the video packing Stone and Light, and I've always loved the song, and I just see you there tearing it up, and I said, oh, this man's he's killing the bass, and. <laughs> I, can, I can play. I can play it a little bit. The one I've got, you know, certain notes and everything. But yeah. um, you know, do, do you slap the bass in the bri- in the middle eight and the bridges? Yes, and uh, I, I'm trying. Good. To do, yeah, I'm trying to do something that uh, watch Getty Lee do that he makes look so oh, easy, but it's not yeah. for me. And that's plucking yeah. them. Uh, oh, I cannot, yeah, I cannot yeah. do that, but I do appreciate somebody who can. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, all, all my stuff is really simplistic right now. Like I've learned, uh, you know. Uh, I should uh, think so. With the, you only got yeah. one arm. I mean, for goodness' sake. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, like House of the House of the Rising Sun. I can play that. You know, uh, yeah, couple, couple yeah, of yeah. things here and there. But you know, being a drummer, they hold my own. My brain and heart's yeah. like, okay, I just want to run up and down this neck, and then my my uh, skills are like, yeah. nope, not yet. You know, I just got to say to you, though, you know, and we mentioned slapping, you know, again, on bass, and then we're talking about a lot, a lot about um, instrumentation and how players play, but at the end of the 70s and early 80s, you know, it was Larry Graham playing, uh, slapping the bass like a drum, uh, like a drum player. And uh-huh. Louis Johnson with uh, Brothers Johnson, you know, um, I really got infatuated by the way the bass guitar became uh, an addition to a drum kit. You know, but by, by, as you say, percussive, Geddy Lee plucking their strings suddenly the bass 
um, was very, very percussive and very much higher on the mixes. So slapping to me became, uh, I was fascinated by it as a kid because I was an English white boy um, from, <laughs> from Southampton. But, you know, we didn't really slap the bass from England. But as soon as yeah. I came to South uh, in America, went down south, I just thought, oh, my God, this is so rhythmic and so sexual and so, um, so powerful. So, um, yeah, the bass guitar, I think, you know, I mean, the slap bass was happening in the 50s when they were doing the swing. Uh, but when you really were able to elect, uh, make the bass guitar electric, um, some of those great uh, bass funk players, like we say, Larry Graham and uh, Lewis Johnson, I was very affected by that. Yeah, it, uh, it, it's, it's a fun adventure, you know, to start something new. Um, and yeah. then, like, um, you know, I saw that you uh, did some stuff with the Love and Mercy soundtrack. Uh, Brian Wilson uh, of the Beach Boys, yeah. you know, uh, arranging all that could have really yeah. played anything you wanted to and he's playing the bass right there in the origin of it and it just shows yeah. you how important that element is to that whole sound in anything and i just i believe the bass is underrated but it's it's so you violent. know I, I do lots of interviews just but uh talking about the bass is something i've always wanted to do so <laughs> yes i must say your your you know your interview with me is great because i'm talking about something where i fundamentally started from and my songwriting started from playing the bass um and, uh, you know, it's very interesting when I started to really uh, study uh, writing music. Elton John was very important to me. And I would look at his chords and I would look at, because he was classically trained, I would see where the bass was moving. And it was beautiful to play chords and then put the bass to be not the root note, to be the third or the fifth or the ninth or the second, and to be moving uh, through through these chords, not with the root notes. And it was very emotional. So, um, you know, I talk to my manager about it a lot. I say, everybody asks me about songwriting, but I wish somebody would talk to me about being a bass player. So <laughs> I appreciate you doing that. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, being from Music City, uh, playing music, yeah. just loving it with all my heart and soul. I, I, can I like I like to dig uh, deep into everything and learn because, you know, when, you know, like I said, I'm reverting back to King of Wishful Thinking and how powerful that song is and how yeah. it hurts your heart and uplift you. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, I got to tell you, like, what's the origin of this? And then I see your name and then I, I put it together with, you know, House of Stone and Light, which meant so much to me. Just a, a fantastic mm. song through the ages. Mm. It's lasted the test of time. And then, you know, watching oh. you play bass and everything and then looking at some of your pictures snooping there on Instagram, I'm like, man, <laughs> doing the bass. And that's, that's my language because I'm having to switch over because if I want this arm to last, <laughs> I'm going to have to, you know. Hey, will, will you ever be able to play drums again? Uh, I could, but it's just like um, by trade, yeah. you know, obviously the podcast is a hobby for a guy like me, but I, I, I do love yeah. it. Uh, I, I deliver Good. paints for Sherwin-Williams, so I'm oh, having to learn well. how to use my left hand. I'm going to have to be more with the left because my I goodness. Use, you know, yeah. blue collar life. Uh, my check engine light came on at 35, so I'm just trying to maintain in any moment I can. So. Well, I'm, I, t I take my hat off to you, Josh, because I, I can tell with your enthusiasm that you're going to be able to master this, you know. Um, and, and I think that's a big thing you say when the check light comes on as we start uh, going through <laughs> life. We start notice that certain things aren't working quite so well. And uh, yeah. <laughs> we, <laughs> we have to work out other ways to make them work. So I take exactly. that off you, mate. That's really great. Thank you. Thank you. You brought yeah. Elton John, another precious thing, and I know you've, you've spoken on it several times, is, uh, is being a co-writer with his uh, closest uh, confidant, you know, according to the movie and everything, uh, Bernie yeah. uh, Taupin, did I say his name right? His last name. That's right, Bernie Bernie Taupin. Yeah, how how incredible! And you guys wrote some of the biggest songs ever. And uh, 
My favorite one is when I just discovered, uh, I guess you guys did it together. Was it you and him on Robbie Robertson? Well, actually, no, I wrote with Robbie Robertson myself. I wrote um, A Fallen Angel and yes. Hell's Faker with Robbie Robertson on his solo record. But it's an interesting thing you bring up when you say Bernie Taupin at that time because I didn't know too much about Robbie Robertson. And, uh, uh, and then I was working with Bernie. And Bernie, when uh, once Bernie was, had left the country and I was working with Robbie Robertson, even though Bernie and I were writing together. When um, Bernie came back to America, he said, what have you been up to, Mr. Page? And I said, I'm working with this bloke called uh, Robbie Robertson. He, oh, my God, that's my hero. That is the band. That's, yeah. why we, that's why we didn't avoid connection. That's, why, that's what we're about. And I said, oh, I didn't really understand that. I didn't know that. And so um, Bernie was a huge fan of Robbie's. And, uh, but I did write with Robbie on my own. Robbie uh, basically wrote the lyrics. It was an interesting situation. But uh, it was around the same time that I was working with Bernie Taupin um, with These Dreams and We Built the City that um, I was working with Robbie Robertson. And it was quite interesting that I didn't think much of it, but Bernie thought I was working with God, you know. <laughs> well, uh, what, uh, uh, what I like about that song is that, you know, and I just discovered it, you know, from, from doing some research on you, and I enjoy it. Um, Great. I'm assuming Great. it sounds like it's like Peter Gabriel's involved in it too, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I didn't know that was going to happen. Uh, Daniel Lemoyne was producing the record, um, and he'd worked with U2 and Peter Gable before, uh, obviously Sledgehammer. And um, uh, Robbie suddenly said to me, you know, Peter Gable's going to guest vocal on this. And I'd grown up again back in England, being a huge fan of Genesis yeah. and an early uh, Genesis. So I'd watched Peter Gabriel, you know, with the early records, Foxtrot, nurse, Nursery Crime, and selling England by the pound. So it was a big deal to me that Peter Gabriel was singing my melody. So yes, Peter Gabriel sang on A Fallen Angel. And, and uh, somebody asked me recently, you know, what, what am I most, um, feel most satisfied with that when somebody's recorded my songs? And I think Fallen Angel um, turned out pretty exceptional for its powerful emotion. So having Peter Gabriel sing, sing on that song meant a lot to me. Yes, it's a great song. And, and Thank you, and, thank you. And, like you, I'm gonna I'm gonna compliment you with two other people. Uh, what I like about Robbie, uh, and he's li a lot like John Fogerty, is he wrote yeah. songs about the South without actually being here. You know, being Canadian, just like John Fogerty yeah. being in California writing about the South. And yeah. I love people that heart and mind is so advanced that you can describe things just because you have that natural gift. You have that as well. And that's oh, my kind of songwriter. <laughs> that that means that means a tremendous amount to me. I mean, I did eventually get to go down south with my father when I was a child, down to Savannah and Charleston, um, and uh, House of Stone and Light broke um, as a big record uh, for an Englishman. They were all looking, saying, you know, did he come from the south or is he talking about the south? Is he talking about Christianity or whatever? It was, as you say, just an absolute. Um, enveloping of what I grew up on and what I loved and the spirit really the word mm -hmm. is spirit everything in music is spirit and it hasn't yeah. got to be logically something but um I do take that as a great compliment because um I do think John Fogerty as a kid again and when we heard Bad Moon Rising and we we heard all the early Credence records we just you felt something that you couldn't explain but I think you know, when you think about the night, the night they drove old Dixie down, um, I bought that um, when Tim Byers had put it out as a single. And uh, wow. it was only when I was working with Robbie Robertson that I looked at the record and went, oh, I'm working with a man who wrote yeah. the night they drove old Dixie down. 
And, uh, yeah, you know, I didn't know. And my manager said, you know, have you heard the weight? Have you heard Big Pink? And and the great thing about what you're saying there is Robbie Robertson, you know, coming from Canada, um, also had a great understanding of um, what musicians, their spirits were. So when he worked with, with me as a, a newcomer, an English guy uh, uh, coming through with the 80s, it was almost like he was very, very open to music that I was playing to him from Scotland, the Blue Nile, prefab spot, modern bands, uh, Cocktoo Twins coming from London. And it was the way, uh, Josh, which I think you feel as a musician, how you uh, amalgamate that into what you do. You know, so when I did In the House of Stone and Light, I was feeling the middle eight being like Jets Hotel. decided that in honor of almost two years of Uncharted to reprise the Yeti's Berg Address. It was a little uh, portion of the podcast in its beginnings, its humble beginnings, where Sam Madewell and I would uh, discuss and interview people who uh, have studied Sasquatch, UFOs, anything you could possibly think of. Well, unfortunately, I had to do this one solo, but this Yettysburg Address on Uncharted Podcast, that was a mouthful, is none other than Ron Moorhead. Now, Ron Moorhead has captured Sasquatch um, speaking Uh, with the Sierra Sounds. You can look on his websites. He has written several books. Um, He's got video documentations you can watch on YouTube. Um, uh, He's traveled all over the world, and he gave a great interview about Sasquatch and what he thinks about the um, being going into the future. So we have reprised it for the special edition, the Yettysburg Address with Ron Moorhead on the Uncharted Podcast. Enjoy. Listening to the Sierra Sounds, um, and uh, my friend Sam, who also is a Sasquatch uh, enthusiast, uh, you know, the uh, way he's described it and what you have captured, uh, basically, it's just parallel to each other. No matter, you know, whether you're in Washington State, as yourself, or in Middle Tennessee, like us, um, you just talk about that experience a little bit. It sounds like it's the most profound evidence uh, that anybody's had that I've discovered so far. Yeah, well, at the time, uh, we didn't know just how significant it was. We just thought it was some kind of a wild ape running around the woods and had been documented and uh, documented, excuse me. And anyway, uh, it was quite an experience, and it still is. You know, we've uh, been involved in that now for 50 years since I encountered it in 1971, me and some other hunters in a remote camp of the Sierra Nevada Mountains. Eight miles in the wilderness, about 8,400 feet in elevation. Very imposing area to get to, and... These two brothers have been hunting up there since the 58, 1958. And uh, anyway, they came out with this uh, remarkable story. I knew them as just friends. I wasn't a hunter at the time, but uh, that's how it all began. And uh, the guys, the other hunters that went with them, went back up there. There was uh, 
or five of them at the time. Five, yeah, because one guy wouldn't go back after he heard them. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's how I got involved, actually. Uh, the women were all worried because the guys didn't come back, and he they asked him to go back and check up on them because they didn't know what they were dealing with at the time, some kind of monster or going to eat them or just what was going to go on. So anyway, um, I went back up, and I was friends with all of them, but I wasn't a hunter until then. I became a hunter, so I could I could part of that group. It was quite a pristine hunting area, and they kept it kind of private for all these years because of that. So that's how I got involved, and we took a, a reporter up there, an investigative reporter, after we had contacted Ivan Sanderson uh, back east, who's a cryptozoologist, and uh he thought it was probably a hoax because nobody has repeat encounters like this, much less being able to record them like we did. And uh, he sent it off to a guy named Peter Byrne here in Oregon. And uh, Oregon thought, uh, <laughs> Peter thought the same thing. Somebody's pulled somebody's leg here because nobody has uh-huh. repeated encounters like this. If you see one more than once in your lifetime, you've been hit by lightning twice, <laughs> something like yeah. that. Sure. <laughs> so that's how I got involved. And uh, Peter got a hold of a guy named Alan Berry, and Alan Berry came down and interviewed us uh, in the valley, San Joaquin Valley of California. And he, uh, we invited him in 1972, and he records, he sounds like we were recording. And, uh, so anyway, he knew the significance of them. We didn't. And he, he was trying to get some kind of unbiased uh, scientific analysis on them because he was looking out for the hoax also. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, so uh, he went to, finally found a guy named, uh, a guy, a professor at the uh, University of Wyoming named uh, Curlin, Dr. Curlin, and he studied them for a year, and and uh, he determined that there was no manipulation of the tapes. They were spontaneous. They were they were inside, outside, and in, uh, outside and below the human range of average human. Anyway, uh, he gave quite a good report and gave it to the Anthropology Unknown in British Columbia, 1978, I think it was. And, uh, and it got published in a book, uh, how his findings were. And it was unbiased, and Al Berry just wanted to know if this, if this real or had been manipulated, but there was no 60-cycle hum in the tapes, which would have uh, been a ringer for pre-recording, and they were not pre-recorded, because we knew that when we were up there, but... He got the science behind it. I got, got the wheel rolling on the, the science and the significance of these recordings. Yeah. And uh, it wasn't until 2008 till a cryptolinguist uh, retired from the Navy as a cryptolinguist uh, to to listen to and try to determine what kind of sounds or uh, any kind of a foreign language is being spoken or if there's a code being sent through them or anything like that. And he came out actually from Missouri where he was teaching high school after retirement and uh, I said high school, excuse me, college, and interviewed Albert and I both, and uh, got the context of it and asked if he could study the sound. So he did. <clears throat> he uh, went back and uh, after studying them, he, he determined that there is a language, not just a language, but a complex language within these sounds. And that, that means something very special. It did to me at the time, and it should to everybody, because only humans are supposed to be able to have the mechanism for for language, which means the hyoid bone, hyoid bone connected to the tongue, which sends the nerves into the brain, which you can look at something and talk about it, like we're doing now. Yeah. And uh, so that's how I got started, Josh. Uh, yes, sir. And one thing I found intriguing, you know, looking on your website and, and some videos on YouTube and everything, you're you're of the world. You've been everywhere and uh, seen everything. And uh, and and like you'd also said, which was on my mind that. Being in the 70s, it would be a hard sell to, like, 
fake something like this. I mean, do you feel that, that Sasquatch is in uh, every territory, like where you've been, do you think, or is it just like exclusive to the United States, or do you think like they're everywhere? Well, I, I, I know there's reports everywhere. Like you say, I've been not everywhere, but I've been to a lot of places, Peru, <laughs> yeah. Bolivia, Siberia, uh, Russia, uh, yeah, Nepal. Uh, so I, I've been to those places uh, looking around for enigmas, you know, because there are enigmas associated with these things. And I've come to find out that not just an ape running around the woods, there, there's something much more than that. And uh, that's where I come up with my second book, The Quantum Bigfoot. But mm-hmm. anyway, um, uh, yeah, uh, there seems to be more sightings here on the uh, in the Pacific West and all the way all across the United States, really, than anywhere else. Or else they're just being reported more, and there's more and more uh, attention being given to them. Back in the days when this was happening to us so significantly in the 70s, it was really something we kind of kept closer to a chest because we didn't want to be made fun of. We were businessmen. We were uh, thought of, I think, I think we were thought of okay in the community. And mm-hmm. We just didn't want to uh, really divulge all that uh, weird stuff that went on. Bigfoot, you got to believe in Bigfoot. That's cartoonish, but... Really, there's something with a Bigfoot, a big voice. There's, there's a species out there that's, uh, that's unidentified yet by science, yet we know about them. And more and more people are finding out about them, too, and discovering uh, some of the enigmas associated with them, which brings it into a whole other light for me and, and probably for a lot of other people, too. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, know, you touched on quantum physics and, and spirituality uh, and everything that comes with Bigfoot. Uh, my friend Sam, as I was saying, he brought up a, a point that I found interesting, and um, uh, he has the theory, and I'm sure lots of people do, that Bigfoot like either travels through time or has an ability to make itself not visible to people. Uh, do you believe? Do you believe in that as well? Like uh, the reason it hasn't like like there's never been uh, remains found as of yet or anything like that. Uh, do you believe there's some kind of uh, correlation or connection to that? Very well could be. Uh, I, I kind of lean that way myself because of the uh, reports I've had and because of the encounters that I've had up there in the Sierras. Because it wasn't just one time. We had going on through the early 70s. and It was getting uh, kind of a commonplace to get them to come around up there. But So anyway, uh, uh, as far as them being interdimensional or, you know, everything relates to the laws that actually control the, the universe, which is quantum physics. And we uh, we do uh, acknowledge in our three-dimensional reality. We acknowledge uh, uh, Newtonian physics. Everything is well predictable and and uh, physical material. But in quantum mechanics, it's not that way. It's uh, it's just uh, unpredictable. Uh-huh. And when you see you hear so many reports over the years, like I've talked to a lot of people over the years, and uh, they actually. Uh, uh, saw them disappear. Well, for a long time, I thought, well, that's crazy. Nothing could just disappear. But then you find out you only see within everything is energy, frequency, and vibration, according to Nikola Tesla, and according to physics. So if everything is energy, frequency, and vibration, they say if you can change the frequency of something, you can you can alter the matter. And if, that's, if these things have that ability, uh, which I kind of tend to think they do because of the strangeness that goes on around them, and uh, actually, when you get out of this dimension, if they are interdimensional, uh, time doesn't exist as we experience it now in our lineal time frame. Mm-hmm. So could they be? Yeah, they could be. But I get into the alien intervention possibly into the genome of, uh, of a species here on Earth. 
And I think that's very significant for people to understand just the, the bubble that we we often catch ourselves in. It's just our bubble of life for 67, mm-hmm. 80 years, something like that. And, uh, there's more going on. And it's been here, this earth has been here for eons. And uh, it's just a lot of things that happen here. And when you travel the world like I have, you see all these strange things, uh, something with a vast technology has been here. We don't know how they do a lot of the things they that's been done, like I've seen in, in Bolivia and those places like that. It's, it's just amazing. So you realize that uh, advanced technology has been here. Have they manipulated the genome of different species? Have they manipulated the genome of the targetites? You know, uh, yeah, I think so. They, they probably have uh, because something has to answer uh, the nave lore. Something has to answer the things people are experiencing. And do we have those abilities? I don't know. Uh, I think sometimes we do have the abilities. We just have not evolved far enough. Can they mm-hmm. cloak? Can they get out of your perception? Sure. Anything can if it gets in the right frequency. Sure. So how and, do they uh, nim- yeah. Um, sure. And I, I enjoyed you had a – I was listening to a discussion you had briefly about uh, the, the Nephilim, and you said um, you believed that uh, Sasquatch could be – perhaps a watered-down version, which is I'd never heard anybody speak on it in that part and really kind of opened my eyes, um, and I appreciate you bringing that out, but that was very interesting as well. Yeah, well, my book, The Quantum Bigfoot, uh, the subtitle is Bringing Science and Spirituality Back Together, and uh, they need to be together because science seems to be restricted from uh, from going into quantum physics. At least modern science is quantum physics, which is only over 100 years old. Uh-huh. So you're not even taught that in school. You know, you're taught about uh, Newtonian physics, which is relevant. You know, we need to know calculus and things like that. But anyway, uh, uh, yeah, I got off the question that you asked me. But uh, <laughs> what did you um, ask? Me? <laughs> I was just talking about about the, about the oh the Nephilim, Nephilim. yeah, the, yeah, the biblical Nephilim. 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 Yeah, I, I, in my book, I give uh, different scenarios of how these things could have made it through the deluge. How how they could be here now, how remnants of them could be here, and uh, that's one of them. Nephilim, uh, they the aliens were intervening in the human genome back in the old days, uh, biblical days, and even prior to that. So uh, what were they doing? They were trying to corrupt it, so they because they want the earth. This earth is a jewel, and uh, uh, really many species would want to be here, and probably are here now. Uh, messing around with us, you hear a lot of reports of UFOs and aliens anymore, and a lot of about 20 of the Bigfoot sightings that are connected with the UFOs. So, could they be the Nephilim? Well, what is the Nephilim? The Nephilim was uh, aliens intervening, intervening with uh, with genomes and species, and if that's what they did back, and that is what the biblical records say, well, could they do it again? Yeah, everything has a free will, even the. Uh, they call them fallen angels in the Bible, but uh, I call them aliens because it seems to be less arm-crossing for people when they hear me talk mm-hmm. religion. I don't talk religion. I talk spirituality mostly. Yeah, I understand. And and and, and, I, and I, I was listening to where you know you're discussing the book of Enoch, and I, I even remember, and to me, uh, have studied the Bible where uh, Ezekiel saw the wheel in the sky. And I've heard theories, and which is it, it makes sense to me that you know that he's describing it as a as a wheel with you know flames and everything. But I mean, at the time, that's what he saw. But that could have very well been a a spacecraft. You know, he just didn't know how to quite describe it at that time frame. Yeah, your brain only fills in what it what it understands at the time. I mean, you can only if you see 
something walking upright in the woods, you think, well, there's a bear walking upright. Uh, it's the same thing with, you know, your brain will fill in the holes if, if it doesn't know the information. So uh, uh, that's what, you know, he filled in what he thought he saw for the time and uh, a wheel within a wheel. And it was it sounds very much like he was describing a UFO that is reported so much nowadays even. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of uh, lot of stuff on this, even outside the good book. You know, there's a lot of information in Greek mythology and Hebrew mythology, and you get back into even native lore, and you find a lot of. Well, 1888, I think it was when uh, um, they, there was a report out of the uh, Eureka Times. I think it was. Uh, this was reported in the Huffington Post in 2012, but um, they witnessed a bunch of ranchers and some Native Americans saw this this uh, big ball, I call it a small moon coming out of the sky and and three crazy bears got out of it. <laughs> oh wow. <laughs> that's that's eighteen eighty eight and ever since then you've I've heard reports of you know these things being connected with UFOs. So I'm not sure they're all the same though, Josh. I, I really I get off on this a little bit from the other scientists because I know I'm not a scientist but from other people because they they uh I think there's just one species out there and there's just good ones and bad ones. Well there could be different types of these things out there, given different attributes by different um, aliens, if you want to get into fallen angels or what they can do, because they're definitely more advanced in technology than we are. Okay. And uh, so yeah. there's different types. Uh, some of them are made to be probably good and love and caring, and some are maybe not malicious. Yeah, it's, it's just like, you know, it, it's even with, even with something as simple as like just the human race, how many different people and then how one person is is a little more intelligent or, or somebody is more gifted in one area than another. Um, and, and plus, I'm not one to think that this wonderful planet we have is the only one in this galaxy full of stuff, you know. Um, well, let me ask you this, because um, uh, I've, I haven't heard anybody really bring up the topic yet, but with the pandemic of, of coronavirus and everything, do you think a Sasquatch would be affected by that uh, pandemic uh, if it's not of this world or or like, uh, you know, the same conditions that other animals or us human beings have? I don't think animals are affected by this. I don't think Bigfoot would be affected. By I'm not affected by this. A lot of people are not affected by this because I think they're, well, you're hearing more and more about, uh, I mean, why are we still wearing masks if you get two shots? If they're supposed to be good. So, uh-huh, yeah, I agree. Uh, so anyway, uh, I, I've been a very healthy person about uh, all my life and, I think I get out and I, the sun sees me and I absorb vitamin D. I think vitamin D is uh, probably what you most people are deficient in. And they, if their body's already run down, well, they can, they're more susceptible to catching this. I'm not sure blood type doesn't have something to do with it too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm, uh, I'm, I haven't gotten my shots. I, I, I just get a, if I want to fly somewhere, I have to get a test, you know. But other than that, uh, I think it's, it's maybe a little overdone. I'm not sure we have a pandemic anymore. It's just a, a bug going around for people that's already halfway sick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get into vibrational frequencies too in my book because the higher you can raise your personal vibrational frequency, the better off your health is going to be. These people that, that live in a world of being victimized or watching bad shows where everybody's getting killed or bringing their who they are down. And you got to keep playing who you are up. And you do that through through watching positive things, thinking positive ways, and and being compassionate with other people, and and just show uh, show yourself as being a loving person all the way around. And 
and be that person. Don't just show it, but be it. And uh, that, that raises your frequency and it raises who you are as a person. You know, you can raise the C note enough, you know, on a piano high enough and it turns into light. So everything changes. According to physics, nothing nothing uh, dies. Matter yeah. cannot die. It just, it just changes form. So religious, you, you would call that heaven. You're going to heaven when you die. If you're a physicist, you change dimensions. You go to another realm. And uh, that's how they should really, they're, they're synonymous. Uh, quantum physics and spirituality are, in my opinion, synonymous. So when people call me, I'm in the woo factor, I'm a woo-woo guy or something like that, I don't care. <laughs> so that's, huh? If you want to get into that, you got Einstein, you got Tesla Bohr, all these different physicists from 100 years ago who, who are also woo-wooers, I guess, because uh, they got into the science behind how everything actually works in the universe. Mm-hmm. Well, and it seems through the... Uh... You know, through history and the time, uh, the people who have a, a different way of thought or or a creative thought or or anything innovative, they they always get you know uh, uh, joked about or teased upon at first until you know it's uh, something solid and you know all of a sudden everybody's on board. It's just a weird way the world works. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Yeah, yeah. like UFOs. You know, they were the UFOs a butt of jokes when I was a kid and growing up and all that. And, so many, many people reporting that the government just can't keep keep it under the hat anymore. So they've let out now that okay, we've been having united encounters with UFOs since the 40s, and uh, so there's uh, all kinds of uh, back engineering going on with the crash sites and things like that that I've heard about. I haven't seen any of those things, but I don't have a reason to disbelieve it because uh, we've seen some strange things in the sky up there that were not satellites; they were something strange, you know, that's sure. coming down out of the sky. And I just discovered the, uh, the the actual Battle of Los Angeles. You talk about something that like blew my mind. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. even back then in the day, you know, talking about attacks on beachfronts and things like that. I mean, there's a lot more out there if, if you're willing to dig and, and learn and, and everything. And that's what makes it so fascinating. That's so true. Yeah, there's so much people need to open their minds up to. And the thing I'd like to say to people is just keep your mind open. Don't don't have it shut, but don't have it so open that your brains fall out. You know, <laughs> keep it keep it open to new things and new possibilities. But you know, you got to bring that into your heart mind coherence and make sure that it settles right with you with you. Because there's a way that you can know which way to go and which way not to go just by feelings. And uh, science don't like to hear your words toward feelings, but your heart has more energy than any other part of your body, and it sends out frequencies and you got to tune that into your brain so that your brain heart has a coherence so when you do make a decision you're going by by your heartfelt like some people call it a gut feeling you know <laughs> but it's it's just uh, i think that's how that's how i like to make decisions is by how it feels to me you know, you yeah have, yeah exactly yeah. I, i'm the same boat with you um what uh Let's talk about, and I saw a little clip which looked very interesting, the Crusade movie. Is that your next uh, big adventure on the horizon? Oh, where did you see that? Uh, on <laughs> no. YouTube? YouTube, on YouTube. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, that was done a few years back. Uh, the company, the production company that uh, did that little skit there, was uh, they went out of business right shortly right after they got that, so they never got to sell it. And, oh. uh, I, I wasn't really crazy about running around the world again anyway. I've done that before, and I've I don't mind being somewhere. I just don't like to go somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> it's, I agree. It's a lot to do anymore, especially. But uh, I've had some other sizzle reels done on me, too, which uh, I got a, a production company now trying to work out a, uh, well, yeah. a, a movie look, for, for 
for my story. Yeah, yeah uh, it's uh, it's fascinating stuff. I was looking forward to it, but I appreciate you letting me know. Um, so you got some other things on the horizon. And uh, well, Ron, I appreciate your time. It really means a lot to speak with somebody uh, of you who's well traveled and very knowledgeable. Because, like you said, the more the more people like yourself that come out and and talk about it, the less it, it seems crazy for somebody like me to mention Sasquatch. And the reason I call him Sasquatch is because my friend told me. If you call him Bigfoot, people won't take you seriously. And I don't know if, how you feel about that, but that's just what I was told. <laughs> that's, that's got some merit to it. Yeah, Bigfoot has a cartoonish sound to it. Sasquatch is, you know, big hairy man. That's, but it's mostly out of Canada that they named it up there. Down here they call him Bigfoot because of the obvious Bigfoot they have. Sure. And that wraps up another fun-filled edition of the Uncharted Podcast. Special thanks to my guests, Martin Page for the Yettysburg Address, Mr. Ron Moorhead. Most importantly, thank you, the listener, because without you, this wouldn't be no reason for doing this. So thank you very much from the bottom of my heart. I want you to have a fantastic, fun-filled week full of harmonious vibes, safety, love, well-being, and COVID shots if they're available. And we'll catch you later on down the line. This is Josh Belcher saying peace out, Eagle Scout. Catch yourself a rainbow trout. All right, on until next time. Later. Oh, I forgot. I love you for you and where you're at in life. Can't believe it, but snuck it in there. Okay, gone this time for real. Bye.